All right, everybody, welcome to episode 35 of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Bumani, and today I have a special guest, The Blue Bloods. Um, I've been following him for a while, guys, um, on the YouTube spectrum. Him and Scotty, otherwise known as Offscript, have done an amazing job televising and telegraphing, you know, swag football. And for Blue, he goes in-depth in college football all around FBS, FCS aspects. So without further ado, I'm going to let kind of Blue talk about his product, his platform, and what he's like so far about college football before we dive into the specific topics at hand. So Blue, how you doing, man? Uh, hopefully I didn't, you know, ruin your busy day. I know you're a busy man, but uh, what has the season been like for you? And uh, how has it been really growing your platform this past year? Cause that's the first time I saw you and it's really um, taking off as we speak. Yeah, man. Uh, I definitely appreciate you having me on. Always glad to hop on other podcasts and things like that. But yeah, man, we've been going for a while, actually. You know, we started like, I think it's our third season going, but it's our first on YouTube. We used to just kind of upload stat static backgrounds and things like that. And I never thought I'd be recording myself. And, you know, it was actually some friends and like my dad actually was like, man, you need to get on YouTube, like get in front of the camera, do some like real reporting and things like that. And we did. And I started it in the spring and that's kind of how I got into FCS and SWAC football and things like that, because the spring season kind of gave me an opportunity because we're usually so busy with power five and FBS football that I really didn't make a lot of time. Our first two seasons to cover it. And then, you know, you had the Deion Sanders hype. You had, you know, North Dakota State, Sam Houston State. There was a lot of hype around FCS football this spring. So I was like, let's just I'm going to cover it, see if, you know, our listeners at the time would rock with it. And I'm going to be honest, man. I never thought it would catch on like it did. I, I I'm being serious. Like I thought maybe like two people would like care about FCS and like the few power five listeners would rock with it because they didn't have anything else to do. And it just kind of exploded. And in the off season, we had players like Eric Barrier, Spencer Perry from Alabama A&M, you know, uh, different, just different FCS players from around the country come on the show and it really helped us gain a lot of traction. And so this year's our first season covering everything. And you asked how it's been, busy man to cover uh, every level of college football and have time for previews storylines you know interact with everybody it's it's been it's been interesting but you know uh, the feedback we've gotten is, has been real nice and I think everyone's rocking with it so I learned a lot of lessons in our first year next year is going to be even better because I already know how to balance it much better than I did this year yeah and that was kind of going to be my next question but a big thing for me is I found you through Scotty I, I know Scotty was launching his platform really uh, during the spring season and then kind of through you, that's when I was able to discover you and this is your third season. So really want to piggyback on just balancing it all. Like you cover all aspects of college football. I've seen platforms on Instagram that cover FBS. I've seen a platform that covers FCS, but you do both and you're a student in college attending, I think Auburn, as I might say, how do you balance really school and then really the intuitive aspect of being a reporter analyzing all aspects of college football? Yeah, so I mean, I graduate uh, in like two weeks with with my master's. And so like, you know, this semester, I didn't have any classes. It was more just like doing lab work. So I had a lot more time to balance it. But for me, if you ask anyone about me, like you can call my parents, my best friends that have known me forever. And you ask them like one word to define me, it would be football. Like, I mean, I don't care if it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. I don't care if Marshall's playing UTSA. I don't care if it's Northern Illinois playing Bowling Green. I'm watching it. Like I have a TV on somewhere and I'm like paying attention to it. Um, watch, I, you know, and 
being from the South, and I'm originally from Mobile, Alabama, we didn't have any professional teams. We didn't have an NBA team, an MLB team, an NFL team. And so in, in the state of Alabama, it was Alabama football or Auburn football. So I really was raised in college football. I guess wholeheartedly, that's what I grew into love. And, you know, I know a lot of people try to balance, you know, across sports, but for me, I know my niche and it's college football. And I felt like I could really, you know, I'm not saying like change the game, but I feel like I could bring something to it because since I was four or five and six, I was watching college football religiously. Like, you know, kids were watching cartoons at like three. I would make my dad turn on college game day on Saturdays and like watch that. And, you know, the senior bowl was in Mobile and I forced my parents every year, whether it was raining, whether it was freezing, we're going to the senior bowl, going to get autographs, knowing players. And I would just buy the programs at games and read through them like, like books consistently every night I would read the senior bowl program as like my nightly book as a kid so it was like it's it's, it was different for me but for the balance man it's just staying informed and like and I I talked to Scotty about this on Saturday nights I don't sleep I probably don't go to bed till six seven in the morning because I'm up all night watching highlights of games watching as much film as I can of games that I know I'm going to have to talk about and things that I'm going to have to know and and I think you can relate to this man you having a show you're going to make time for things you love and I'm dedicated to the podcast I'll be re-enrolling in Auburn um in the summer to get my sports media degree and like in in, like you know if you want to make a career out of this you're going to show you have the dedication and so for me even if it's three and four in the morning, you can tell on some of my episodes, if you go back through my catalog that I look exhausted, it's because I'm recording at 5 a.m. and I got a test in the morning. And just I, I feel like showing that type of dedication really is going to play a large role. And why my channel is so successful because I feel like my subscribers, listeners and other platforms like Scotty, yourself, cut day and they that people that know me know how much effort I put in and I feel like that's how you have to establish yourself nowadays because as you know there's a million channels out there you find college football content sports content so how do you separate yourself and for me I said I'm going to put in the extra effort because I can't name another channel that covers all three levels of college football as in depth as we do and so that's that's kind of that that's what I wanted to make my selling point and even if I have to sacrifice sleep or going out or doing something man I, I just know that it's going to pay off in the long run. Yeah, I can't either. I can't name another platform like you that covers <laughs> all all aspects of college football. I know really when I got on the Instagram groove, I saw people you know, commemorate their time and energy for FBS. But lately this season, it's been a hot bid for I got individuals invested and involved with an FCS football. And when you see things like the HBCU Legacy Bowl sprouting, for guys who are in the HBCU realms football-wise, being able to have a game to showcase their talents to pro scouts. East-West Shrine game is now delving into getting guys from FCS programs to play at that event. I just saw Kobe Durant and Marquise Bill just get offered. So that's a big deal. So how has it been really, you know, being a media conglomerate for FCS football and then having really seen fan base is really invested within that aspect of college football and being involved, which in tune allows you to kind of learn and analyze and then really commemorate to them the importance of having their product being showcased in a media platform. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I, I talked about this with Scotty off camera as well because he's big in the swag. Yeah, it's our job to 
help push the movement. And I'm not talking about just the SWAC movement because that's important too, but just the entire FCS movement because there's a lot of FCS players outside of the SWAC that don't get recognized either. And I feel like it's our job as analysts to come into every episode. But like, let's say you cover Southeast, Southeastern Louisiana, which is playing FAMU this weekend versus McNeese. How do you, my approach if I cover that game is how can I sell this to an Oklahoma fan? to make them tune in this weekend to watch this game? How can I sell this to someone who has no ties to any university and how can I make them watch it? And I feel like that's what more platforms need to do. And I feel like that's what we have. Cut Day has the highlights. The condensed game reviews are the best thing going on YouTube for the SWAC and the, and the HBCUs. Someone needs to pick that up on the FCS level. I don't have time for that, but somebody can, somebody can get with Cut and do that for the FCS level. But the, the longstanding thing, and I mean, you covering SWAC and things like that understand this, is that the t- level of talent isn't the same. And I even hear it from SWAC fans say that the level of talent isn't the same. And I'm like, that's horrible coming from somebody who is supposed to be supporting this level of football. The level of talent is there. And if you cover any sort of recruiting, it could it could come down to you were injured on the weekend that the scout came to scout your high school, that you missed your opportunity. It You had one bad game. You had one class that you failed. You had one discipline issue that kept you from a school. You made one mistake at Arkansas that led you to Southeastern Louisiana, like a Cole Kelly. And, you know, there's always things, or you hit your growth spurt too late. And so you didn't have an opportunity to go P5. I've, I'm of the mindset that the talent difference isn't the thing, the resources, the fund play a larger role than a lack of talent because I think when you look at the top of the FCS you look at an Eric Beria you look at a Cole Kelly a Marquise Bell you can't convince me that every single player on the P5 level is better than those guys you just can't a Quincy Patterson at North Dakota State and Ezard at Sam Houston those players could play at the P5 level but for one reason or another the opportunity to opportunity didn't present itself so I feel like it's our responsibility it's a large responsibility it's our responsibility to to promote these athletes to promote these schools and to do our part in this whole movement of the FCS level being at the forefront you know they have ESPN plus now and now all these games have a have a place to be televised which you know 10 years ago that wasn't the case but how can we promote it to be bigger Eastern Washington and Eric Barrier got so much hype that their game against Montana, I believe it was week eight, got flexed to ESPN2 in primetime in the middle of the season. Is there, outside of the spring season, I don't think anyone can name another FCS game that's been on ESPN2 in the regular season. That's how big of a movement it is. So for me, I feel like as much hate as, you know, YouTubers and, you know, they call us amateur reporters or whatever get, I think that we're really the backbone of, you know, the FCS getting the attention it needs because, I mean, I have people from Southern Alabama, man, who right now, I, my, I, have, I have a cousin right now who is from like a dirt road in Alabama. His favorite player to watch is Akil Glass because of my show, because I had Akil Glass on the show. Would that ever happen if 
you know, someone didn't tune into my show. There's, I have people who root for Baylor, Florida, Oklahoma, who watch the SWAC now, who watch the FCS because they're fans of my show. And I'm sure it's the same for Scotty, who's a way bigger platform than I am. I'm sure it's the same for Cut Day and CFL and all these other FCS shows. And there's a whole list of FCS shows out there. I could go on for hours, but everyone plays a part. And I feel like it's our responsibility to further the movement even further than it's already gone this year. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, you cut they off script. You guys play a huge part in really introducing that FCS element to YouTube because a lot of people go to YouTube to catch up on highlights and whatnot. And condensed highlights in the sport of not just football, but all sports helps a lot to kind of get people up to date on what the talent is, how good these teams are. And so as we're seeing in the NFL drafts, North Dakota State producing the Carson Wentz and the Trey Lance, guys are understanding that it doesn't matter where you play institutionally. If you have talent, Guys will come. And now I think people can look at this talent before it reaches the NFL earlier to understand what's being produced in those platforms. So really big ups to all you guys to make that happen. And uh, I'm just impressed and hope you guys continue to keep going and really have this thing grow beyond just when a Deion Sanders leads, but really to continue it evolving because everybody's talented in their own right. And they need to be really highlighted and spotlighted for that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the that's the main thing I'm interested to see is like, you know, and that's the next step is how do we keep it going? Because it's easy to be real hot for one or two seasons. It was hot in the spring. It's hot now. Probably will even be hotter next year because of the momentum of FAMU getting in the playoffs, Jackson State, the FCS as a whole, you know, having the spotlight right now. But how do we keep that going three, four, five, ten seasons down the line? And, no, not every show is going to last ten seasons. I mean, I mean, what, first take? is the only show really on ESPN that's lasted that long. And they've been through so many changes. I mean, they don't, they don't even have two hosts anymore, hardly. So, you know, maybe we're not here, but how can we set the groundwork for that to continue? And, you know, like you said, when Dion leaves, who's going to be here? And, you know, for me, I feel like, I feel like a lot of people just assume that the new people and the people, you know, who just got here are just going to dip. But, you know, based on the people I've talked to, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the case because I feel like everyone's invested now. I mean, everyone has a vested interest in the universities, the the, the storylines, the players, the matchups, the rivalries. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot to be talked about even after a Deion Sanders leaves, a Willie Simmons leaves, um, an Akil Glass leaves, whoever you want to, you know, give credit for, for part of the movement. So I, I feel like, it's going to, it's the momentum's there. It's just right now, I think people are skeptical whether it's going to continue, but I have, I have a lot of hope in a lot of the channels that, um, that they are going to continue even after a lot of this, the initial surge of momentum ceases. Yeah. Momentum. It's important when it comes to creating platforms, when it comes to sports, all of that. And you just want to see it keep going and people keep evolving and keep producing in that realm. And speaking on the aspect of momentum, fam, you, had really a momentous ending to their season. Nine and two overall. They're a swag at large bid. They finished second in the swag east at seven and one. Blew out Bethune Cookman. And I saw the game live with my fiance. And really the way that they ended that game in the second half against Bethune Cookman, I think cemented their playoff standing for sure. And now they're getting Southeast Louisiana. But before we dive into that, just what was the turning point you felt like a fam you season to kind of get them to this point? And you've spoken about really their playoff chances throughout the year on your platform and with Scotty's. You also said, fam, you had a lot of things go right for him to have this opportunity to be in the playoff. Talk about that aspect as well. But let's first talk, talk about how they turned their season around after really two L's to kind of run the table towards the end and to get to this point. 
Yeah, for me, I'll really look, you know, you, you uh, they've been on a win streak since South Florida, which was week three, the third game. They started one and two. The one-point loss to Jackson State, I don't think is as bad of a loss as people think. The offense just like it didn't have the rhythm. And a lot of people just ignored that they haven't played football in like 600 days. And they had a new team, and they're facing a Jackson State team with like 22 new starters. And uh, I just feel, I feel like that game wasn't indicative of what that team could do. And then they play South Florida. They only lose by I believe it was like 14 point or 21 points. I believe it was. It was like 38 17. That's not a bad loss to an FBS team on the road, you know, in week three. But for me, the turning point was the Alabama A&M game. If if people think way back, I, I believe that game was like mid October. In Huntsville, it was the week after AM got just ransacked by Jackson. I mean, the doors blown off by Jackson State in that in that 60-something you know point loss or whatever. But they were down in the going into like the fourth quarter by double digits. And if you watch Alabama AM, that's not the team you want to be down double digit scores on in Huntsville with a kill glass in that wide receiving core. And in the second half, Bishop Bonnet exploded and really established himself as the face of the offense and that defense just ate Akil Glass in that wide receiving core up, held Akil under 200 yards passing. And I really feel like the comeback win, it was a 35-31 win. That was the turning point in the season where FAMU said, okay, we're going to lean on Bishop Bonnet. We're not, we're going to make Rashawn McKay comfortable, do a lot of dump offs, do a lot of intermediate routes and not really put, you know, not really force him to be something that he's not. We're going to run the football and play tough defense and down the stretch. That's exactly what they did. They had a tough game against Mississippi Valley state. Caleb Johnson had a crazy game against that defense um, in that one. But then down the stretch, you look at that Bethune game, the team found its resiliency. I mean, the first half, Bethune's in that game. It's 13-7 at halftime, and you're looking at FAMU like, okay, it's been a long time since y'all won this game. 2010, are y'all going to be able to pull that out? Two fumble recovery touchdowns. Bishop Bonnet breaks out. Terrell Jennings, Jalen McLeod, a three-headed monster at the running back spot, and they put up – like 40 points in the third quarter. It was 40 to nothing. They outscored Bethune in that third quarter. That that was so impressive. And I think it it all stems back to that second half comeback against AM where they finally found their identity. And winning close games builds character and brings teams closer. And so when I look at where was the turning point for FAMU, I feel like it was that Alabama AM game in mid-October where their season was on the line and they found a way to win. I agree. You know, the Alabama AM game was unique in its own right because, like you stated, they were down double digits, head to the fourth quarter, and to hold that Bulldogs offense to three points while you score 19 in the fourth quarter, completely flipped the switch for not that team in that game, but for the season overall. And, you know, they had this three-headed rushing attack with Bonnet and with Jennings, and they're – and I uh, forgot his name off the top McLeod. of my head. Let me put it up. McLeod. They're yeah. all able to run the football – the try, you know, the trifecta, all those guys have 1,800 yards rushing. Bonnet's got 934. And that running game really helped kind of resurrect that offense. And Rashawn McKay gradually over time this season improved on his play. And he looks a lot better than what he did week one against Jackson State, where it clearly looked like he didn't belong on the field as a passer. And so now you kind of play an Alabama AM type team in southeastern Louisiana, who has offense for days, Cole Kelly, reigning Walter Payton player of the year in his own right. I mean, he leads the team in passing yards with over 4,000. He leads the team in rushing yards. They have the number one offense in the FCS. They average 567 yards per game. And FAMU in their own right has Isaiah Land, who has 19 quarterback takedowns, that sacks, that leads the country. 
What's the keys to FAMU pulling off this upset? Because you stated off rip. Southeast Louisiana, they could score, but they have one of the worst defenses in the country. So FAMU's going to have opportunities to score points. But now the biggest dilemma of all is, do you try to match Southeast Louisiana point to point, or is your objective to be to control the line of scrimmage, ball control, on time of possession? It may have it be a grinded out game that fits FAMU style for sure. Yeah, I mean, for me, man, it, it, listen, I, I don't even think this is an Alabama A&M type team. I mean, if this is Alabama A&M, it's like Alabama a- A&M 3.0. I mean, I think they're that much better than even what Alabama A&M's offense is. I love Akil, but, man, Cole Kelly's a different type of animal at the quarterback spot. I mean, 6'7", 260, that's cool. I mean, that's a, that's a grown defensive end at quarterback, and he's athletic and can run. And then on top of that, I believe it's Cephas Johnson's their backup – they use him in a perfect type of role, a role that, you know, me and Allscript were talking, you know, last night about it. That's exactly how Southern should have used Ladarius Skelton. They put him in limited passing and they let him be an athlete. They put him at receiver sometimes and let him be an athlete. But for me, the number one thing for fam, you, you can't let this game get over 30 points. If this game goes over 30 points, you're getting the doors blown off of you. Because if that offense gets rolling, that's going to be a problem because the number one thing for Akil is he's really struggled with pressure and his arm strength isn't the best, which means he can't make those throws under pressure. That's not Cole Kelly. Cole Kelly is a senior. He knows he has the size and he's going to stand in the face of pressure and his arm strength is so much that a flick of the wrist is it's flying out of there. And he's pinpoint accurate under pressure too. If you, you know, me and Scotty are doing a film breakdown on uh Wednesday after Wednesday night, there's, there's some plays I pulled out where I'm talking about a linebacker came unblitzed and hit him in his hit him like below the waist. And he hits like a 50 yard dot and hits wide receiver right in the face mask. And I mean, didn't even flinch. And that's going to be a problem for FAMU because what FAMU's done in the swag is they've made quarterbacks uncomfortable. But how do you make a, this quarterback uncomfortable when he's bigger than your D lineman? Isaiah Land is 6'4", 215. This kid's 6'7", 260. So even if Land gets there, can you bring him down? That's going to be the question for me is how do you get to them? The key for me is, and this is something that, you know, both me and Scotty saw on film, you have to get pressure up the middle because Kelly's so athletic that I don't think Isaiah Land's going to have a huge game. I really don't. I'll be surprised unless it's like a strip sack or something like that. But up, but if you rush up the, I guess, up the edge and you get behind him, he's going to take off up the gap, and you're going to get gashed by the, by this monstrous quarterback he's so athletic and he's so smart and his pocket presence is there. What I think, they've been playing Savian Williams, a defensive tackle. Uh, he's like 6'3", 290, 300 pounds. FAMU's been playing him at edge. If I was Willie Simmons, I'd move him to D-tackle. You're going to have to have size on the inside and generate a pass rush from the interior of your defensive line because the edge rushers play right into what Cole Kelly and this offense wants to do. They're not, they are an air raid attack. They're running four or five wide every single play and they're daring you to stop them. And so the key for me is we know what Marquise Bell is. We know what Antoine Collier is and we know what maybe the, you know, the top two cornerbacks are for FAMU, but the key for FAMU is can your third, fourth and fifth cornerback on the depth chart play big because Southeastern Louisiana has five wide receivers that can be game changers. 
And if it's a matchup nightmare for you, how are you going to stop them? Because Austin Mitchell is, is, is lightning in a bottle, man. I mean, he can turn a, a screen pass into an 80-yard touchdown run in a blink of an eye. He's a matchup nightmare. If they put him in the slot, can your slot corner guard him? I'm not sure about that. And then you've got Gage Ladavian, C.J. Turner, Nolan Given at tight end. The tight end usage for – Southeastern Louisiana is amazing. He had two touchdowns last week versus uh, Nickel State, and he was a problem. And so we haven't seen a lot of tight end usage in the SWAC this year. How, you know, can Marquise Bell and the safeties, you know, cover him at all? I'm not sure. And the other thing is Southeastern Louisiana, man, this is a crazy stat that I just remember off the top of my head. They're 60 for 66 in the red zone this season. They've only not scored six times when they got inside the 25 and 53 of those have been touchdowns. If fam, you cannot stop them from getting in the red zone. It's over because all, all Southeastern Louisiana would do, man, I'm, I'm spoiling my preview here on your podcast. Sorry. Um, they'll go five wide and, and, and then motion in the H back and they'll run QB power and he's six, seven and nobody wants to see him in the hole. Nobody wants to see him on the hole. And that's how he has so many rushing touchdowns this year is if they get inside the five, they're bringing in the H back and Cole Kelly's coming right down your throat. And so that's going to be a key for FAMU. So when you look at their offensive scheme, Bishop Bonnet, Terrell Jennings, and Jalen McLeod, if FAMU doesn't rush the ball 50 times, man, I think they lose this game. You cannot get into a shootout because Rashawn McKay is not Cole Kelly. Uh, he's improved this year, but any FAMU fan, I think, would agree with me that he's not competing with Cole Kelly in, in just a throwing match because you're going to get run out of the building. You have to run the football. Uh, Nichols, Nichols State last week um, almost ran for 300 yards and five touchdowns last week, and that's how they won. Bishop Bonnet, this is your NFL moment. If you can have a big game this weekend, when scouts are calling, and you should. And so if I'm FAMU, I'm rotating fresh bodies in it, running back, and we're running it down your throat until you stop us, and we're keeping your offense on the sideline. FAMU has to win the time of possession battle, and it's very important for them to generate a pass rush on the interior because if you let Kelly get outside of the pocket and make plays with his legs and then you have to take a defender from the secondary as a spa, he's going to eat you alive because what they'll do, and they have a, they, they've, complete, they've converted like 60% of their third downs this year without running the football, man. That's insane because they'll spread you out five wide, they'll run some verts, and they'll come up underneath, and you just can't cover it. It's too difficult to stop that offense that they get in third and short. So that's going to be the keys for FAMU, man. And this gonna this is going to prove whether that defense deserved that number one overall FCS ranking because this is going to be a this is going to be an offense that they have not seen this season. Yeah, man, you explained it really perfectly. Um, the most explosive offense they faced, like I stated, was AM and they gave up 31 and they were down double yeah. digits heading into the fourth quarter. I'm pretty sure you can't do that against Southeastern Louisiana. No. You're if signing they get down. <laughs> yeah. If, if they, they get, get down, if they get down 14 plus man, you might as well turn the TV off because it's, it's going to be, they're not, they're not going to stop that team enough down the stretch to come back like they did against AL because especially in Hammond, I would be mine. If they came back from 14 down, you better sign Willie Simmons to a lifetime contract because that would be magician type stuff. It would be indeed. And like you stated with Kelly, he's basically, you know, Southeast Louisiana's offense. He's their running game. He's got 16 rushing scores. He's their passing game. Almost 4,400 4, yards passing. FCS best 74.2 completion percentage. And they go five wide. So you're going to challenge your depth at the defensive back position. But now phenomenal their safeties are at FAMU. But 
their cornerback positions got a little something left to be desired, and they're going to go five wide. You got to play basically all your guys on your roster, uh, whatnot. But I agree. Um, I think my, you know, things that you can control that can impact this game, trench play. I mean, you stated that the defensive tackles are going to have to be dominant, really providing that pressure up the middle. And then offensively, offensive line for FAMU, they're going to have to make sure that they create the running lanes for that FAMU rushing attack to get going because we know FAMU can run the ball particularly well. And Southeast Louisiana defensively is very susceptible to the run. Nicole State almost, well, basically did run for over 300 yards as a team. And the Southeast Louisiana defense, they gave up 32 points a game. They allowed their opponents to convert almost 45% of their third downs. They only have have had 19 sacks all season. So for FAMU, they're going to have offensive opportunities to get points. How important is it for them to maximize those chances, especially on third downs when you have a team that gives up 45% third downs from the opposition? And then when you get into the red zone, put up touchdowns instead of three points going against a Cole Kelly explosive offense. Yeah, if you get to the red zone and you're not putting up touchdowns, you're giving the game away. I mean, if you're Willie Simmons, it's to the point where if you get in the red zone, you have to go for it. If it's fourth and anything inside the 20, you got to go for it. Because if, if you're kicking field goals and they're scoring touchdowns, it's going to be 21 to six before you know it. And, and that's not something that uh, I think FAMU's built for because you have to run the ball. So if you get behind, you're going to have to throw it. And it's just not it's that's that's going to be a recipe for disaster, in my opinion, because the defense is for for southeastern Louisiana. They, you know, FAMU is just a tough defense. They're not going to let you gain any yards. Southeastern Louisiana has employed the bend but don't break approach where they're going to let you drive all the way down the field. But then they get real tough in the red zone. They've had a solid red zone defense because once that field shortens up, everyone knows uh, the play callers make their money inside the 20. Because that's where it gets difficult because you're, your back's up against the wall and you can't just unleash the whole playbook. How creative can you get? That's going to that's gonna be where FAMU makes his money. If, if Don't abandon the run in the red zone, man. If you get all the way down there, too many teams abandon the run to try to get fancy and they try to do all these complex play actions and, you know, uh, five wide attacks. Listen, you know what you do well. Bishop Bonnet got you there. Bishop Bonnet's going to get you in the end zone. Don't abandon the run. And even if the run's not working early, game in and game out this year at the P5 level, the FCS level, I've seen teams where the key was to run the football and they just abandoned it too soon. Just because it's not working in the first quarter doesn't mean you just need to throw it out the playbook. Continue to run the ball. I would rather fan you run for 200 yards on 70 carries, averaging like two yards a carry, than them run 15 times for 50 yards and them average like four yards to carry. You have to run the football if you're FAMU. And, you know, the D-line's not great for Southeastern Louisiana. They're they're athletic, man, but their problem is they can't tackle. They miss too many tackles in the open field, which leads to explosive plays. So if you're FAMU, you have to know that. And even in your passing attack, I think a lot of screens, I think a lot of underneath routes, let X, let Sharid, let these wide receivers make plays in space. You don't have to push the ball down the field all the time play your game do the glorified runs where it's just a jet sweep or you know a little toss out or something like that that's where you're going to make your money for fam you just if i'm willie simmons my number one goal for them don't overcomplicate things just run the football stick to your game plan and fam you can win this game they're absolutely they absolutely have a chance to win this game if they stick to their keys and game plan yeah i agree you know in football there's a saying that you can only hide your quarterback for so long I feel like this is a matchup, fam. You can get away with Rashawn McKay maybe having 14 to 15 passes because their running game can really dominate Southeastern Louisiana's defense. And so 
I think everybody's been betting it as, you know, Southeast Louisiana's number one offense versus FAMU's number one defense. And that'll ultimately decide itself as the game goes on. But I think FAMU's best chance to win is obviously hold Southeast below 30, and then they have a chance to score 30 plus, which means converting on third down. And then when you're in the red zone, executing with touchdowns, not three points. They've had probably the best running back trio in all of the swag. I think that translates in the first round matchup, and I give them a good chance to win now. When they play James Madison, if they win, beat Southeast Louisiana, that's a different story. McKay's going to have to produce, and right now we both agree he's not there yet. But FAMU has a great chance to win. And so with that being stated, how important is it for the SWAC to have FAMU at least come out of the first round with a victory, getting to a second-round matchup against James Madison? Oh, okay. man, I'm probably going to be in the minority here. I don't even think it's I don't you don't have to win, in my opinion. And I'll explain it because I know there's probably gonna be some SWAT fans listening like you don't know what the hell you're talking about. For me, Southeast Louisiana is a good team. Like you're not losing to a McNeese. You're not losing to a Mississippi Valley State. Like you're not losing to a team that you should beat. You're probably going to be the underdog coming in. You're going to be on the road and you're going to be facing arguably the best quarterback in FCS football. Nobody is going to fault you if you lose a close game. My thing is you just can't get your doors blown off. If FAMU goes in there and loses by 20, that's that's going to be just atrocious for the swag. But if you go in there and lose by three on a field goal or a fluke play or you have like a weird turnover, I don't think you can I don't think you can fault the swag for that. And then they come into the playoffs and prove they can compete with one of the best teams in the playoffs. So I feel like this whole idea that it's a winner bust is a little short sighted, in my opinion, if I could say that. Um, I feel like there's got to be competitive. You know, yes, the SWAC's Owen, I believe, 19 in the playoffs. But if you, as long as you play a close game and you have a chance to win and there was a way for you to win, I feel like that's still a positive spin on things. But for me, a first round win would be everything for the swag. And then uh, God forbid, if you can play James, James Madison close, that would be even bigger for the swag. I don't, I just don't see them beating James Madison. Just going to spoil that one. James Madison's a whole different level of football team than what they're going to see this weekend. But for me, they can, they're, they can beat Southeastern Louisiana and a win would just, I mean, talk about the orange blossom classic next year with Jackson state potentially being the rainy swag champions. I think they'll probably be the celebration bowl champions. I just don't see South Carolina state competing with Prairie view or Jackson state. But if you have that with a team that went to the second round of the playoffs in FAMU week one in Miami again, man, you're talking about the hype train that that would be with, with Dion versus Willie Simmons again. I think a win would do wonders for the SWAC. But for me, I just think the number one thing is you cannot get blown out in Hammond this weekend. You have to keep it within 10, I would say, would be my goal for FAMU. Keep the score within 10 play a solid game, and then I think everything else will work itself out. I agree. Keep it close. I think a lot of people are looking at this as a winnable game. So if you hypothetically loses, it would be a disappointment to them because you look at the stats and you understand Southeast Louisiana is Cole Kelly or bust, and their defense is very suspect. So it's like, okay, fam, you has a number one defense in the country, so they should hang with them. And that's the key. They should hang with them. So I would be shocked if they got blown out by 20, but being blown out by 20 is possible if – FAMU doesn't really do the stuff we've talked about. If they don't control the line of scrimmage, if they let Rashawn McKay have to win the game because they're behind 14-0 off rip because of a special team turnover or a miscue or a fumble or things like that. But I think for the SWAC, you just want 
guys to remember that eventually when the Celebration Bowl contract is up and the SWAC has a chance to get their automatic playoff bid back, which I think they'll take because they'll remember this moment, you want guys to look back at a team five years from now getting into the playoff as well. Last time the SWAC had a representative, they held their own. And like you said, SWAC, the conference has great football talent. And they have teams that I feel like in past years, if they were in the playoff, they could probably win a game or hold their own. And that's what FAMU is representing, not to win the whole thing or to win this game, but to keep it close, keep it competitive. Just so for next year, guys can look at FAMU and that Jackson State matchup as the cream of the crop, but also the conference as a whole. Because I stated, I think everybody in the conference got better this year because of what Dion brought competitively, what fam you brought in competitively and whatnot, which now puts everybody on a clock to compete against each other, which com- which creates better competition for the conference as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, you can make one argument that maybe Alcorn didn't get better, but it was also their first season back from a, from a, from a long hiatus as well. And they have a lot of pieces that probably need fixing going into next season. But I agree, and you, I think you see the standard of the slack changing, especially with all the coaching changes. You look at Fobbs at Grambling, you look at Ely at Alabama, you look at what happened with Rollins and Southern. I mean, there's going to be some big-time SWAC programs that are going to have to find head coaches. And I think you're going to see the approach to coaching hires change a little bit where you might not see so much as like the recycle, the, the you know, re- recycle hires that you see across a lot of these conferences. I think you're going to see a lot of teams think outside the box, like the Jackson State did, where they went and got a Deion Sanders. And, you know, I, I think there's going to be some solid coaching hires. I've heard a lot of names for some of these positions that I think would be great to add to the swag. And I think overall, the the level of competition that Dion and the level of expectations that he brought to the SWAC have overall benefited the SWAC in the long run. And I think it's going to be a sustainable approach moving forward. I agree as well. I agree as well. And, um, you know, Jackson State set the bar high. Fam, you even set it higher. And I think it's going to be for the betterment for the SWAC for years to come. And moving on to Jackson State, beating Alcorn State in the Capital City Classic 24 to 10. Um, this is JSU's first time actually being at Alcorn State in this classic on a football field in about five years. Because when I went to Jackson State, I remember Jackson State did beat Alcorn like nine to seven when I was a sophomore, some fluke type stuff. But they beat them double digits on a football field. It's the first time JSU has kind of went undefeated in the swag in a while. Shador Sanders looked phenomenal once again offensively for them. 297 yards passing, three scores, 28 to 39 completion. And he did this really once again without a running game. Let's be real. Jackson State's offensive line is so bad. It's so bad. And it's amazing <laughs> that they finished the SWAC undefeated because Alcorn State and Southern's defensive line play really dominated them in the trenches. Alcorn held their own. And it looks unbelievable that that happened because Alcorn's D-line plays very undersized. And they kind of held their own in run defense and getting after the quarterback. Um, their discipline, Alcorn State, and the rivalry applications made this matchup a lot more closer than I think people thought it would be, especially in the last five minutes. Alcorn was right there. Really, let's just dive right into it. Shadour just being Shadour. How important has he been to this offense this year? Because we all thought over time, maybe the offensive line would figure themselves out. Maybe the running game would figure themselves out. But outside of that Alabama State game, where Jackson State looked phenomenal, all aspects of the field from start to finish, They've been very vulnerable. How important has Shador been to cover all those uh, holes up to make this offense functional when it matters? I mean, I, I think I think Jackson State 
loses probably three or four games this year without Shador Sanders, to be completely honest with you. I don't know if they escape the FAMU game. I definitely don't think that I don't I definitely don't think they win, you know, like the Alabama State game. The Texas Southern game is probably another one that you look at. Definitely the Southern game and probably even this weekend against Alcorn. I think you can put all those games in question and probably even the Mississippi Valley State game at times. And you know you look at being O-lineman myself, man, it's been so frustrating to watch this offensive line. I mean, zero, like at the beginning of the season, they were really struggling with communication. They weren't calling out their keys. They weren't picking up blitzes. They weren't, you know, trading off, you know, stunts and things like that. And, you know, the communication has gotten better. I saw this weekend they were pointing out keys and things like that, but even pointing them out, they still didn't hit them. And the technique is just atrocious, man. I mean, looking at the way they move their feet, their just overall footwork, their hand placement, heads are down. I I just, I I don't know. And I said on my show, uh, probably a drastic measure, but I think you got to let the O line coach go, man. You got to do something about this offensive line because this is not going to work. And, you know, and and there's a lot of people and um, no shade to any of these channels, but there's a lot of channels saying that Jackson State should be a top five FCS team. And there was one that said they should be a number one team in the FCS. Listen, if you don't have an offensive line, Sam Houston, North Dakota State, South Dakota State, those teams are going to demolish you at the line of scrimmage. I'm talking about 10, 11 sacks. Like what you did to Alabama A&M is what those teams would do to you if you came in there with that offensive line. And you've got to be balanced. And, you know, Southeastern Louisiana runs an air raid, so of course they're not going to be balanced. But you don't have an air raid attack. you got to run the ball against good teams. And I think that was – and I really and truly, uh, if I had to put it like this, I think FAMU is built better to compete in the playoffs than Jackson State is right now because of their run game. And I really think a lot of people who think Jack State would run through the playoffs, I don't think I don't think they would. I, I really think Jackson State is it would be more at risk losing in the first round than a fan you would just because of the offensive line and run game. And it really and truly, if it went for the defense of Shador Sanders, Jackson State would have been in a lot of trouble. And listen, I was very skeptical about Shador just because of all the hype that was coming. He's proved he he answered every question by like week three that I had about him. The pocket presence, the accuracy, the decision making. This kid was legit and he had one of the best years in Jackson State history for a freshman, arguably the best. I think he should win freshman of the year in the FCS in just my personal opinion, but I don't, I don't know if he will, of course, there's some great freshmen. Let me just put it like that. But I think Shador overall for what, for the little amount of help he had, I think he should win it. And for me, and I said it, and you know, I, I, anyone who tuned into the round table like three weeks ago, me and Scotty got into it about it. I think he should win the SWAC player of the year, offensive player of the year over Akil Glass, because when you look at Akil Glass, yes, he's a senior. Yes. He put up stupid stats, but for me, the only reason I said Shador is because at least the kills got Gary Quarles to hand the ball off to. I think uh, I think the wide receiving core is at AM. It might not be as high because Malachi Wadman is a problem. Let me just throw that in, throw that tab that tab in there. Malachi Wadman and Corbin are a problem. But for me, I just felt he had no rushing game all year outside of AM and a little bit of Alabama State. The offensive line ranked last in the SWAC this year in sacks allowed. And really and truly like it was a it was the Shador Sanders show. And if he played like a real true freshman man with the pocket presence of a true freshman, they would have got destroyed 
in some of these games. And I think really and truly you can solely credit the defense of Shador on like 80% of the wins this year for Jackson State. And I, I don't think that's an understatement. And as great as Jackson State was, I still think it was Shador and that defensive line that really should get a lot of credit. And I think you could throw the linebackers in there too, because Hampton and Miller are outstanding as well. But James Houston and Shador Sanders gets like 75% of the credit this year for Jackson State, in my opinion, because they're two grown men playing playing those two positions. And I think without those two players, Jackson State would have had a completely different season. Yeah, you're not lying. Uh, Shador, he's been Jackson State's offense from start to finish. Um, when I went to Jackson State, I always felt like the teams that they had were a quarterback away because their defenses were rather underrated, but they just didn't have that consistency at the signal caller position to be threats in the swag. You get that now with Shador. And from a pro aspect, he, like he's got the nimbleness of like a Jameis Winston where he doesn't look like he's mobile, but he's got the footwork and the elusiveness to escape the rush. And then the accuracy of kind of like a Mac Jones where the arm strength doesn't wow you, but the ball gets there. He's got a command of the offense and he kind of everything just goes through him and he has no problem when he's very productive. And when you look at these numbers, 68 percent completion percentage, almost 3000 yards passing, 28 touchdowns, five interceptions, that Southern game and the um, Valley game really felt like his two worst games of the year for me personally. Texas Southern, that first half, he looked horrible, but he kind of got it together <laughs> in the second half. But even in those games, he has these lulls, and he knows, like, look, my offensive line's not that good. I'm probably going to get hit seven times a game, maybe sacked four times. But as the game goes on, he gets clutcher and clutcher, and he makes these big throws, and he makes these big plays. And I got a ton of respect for him because, just like you, I was skeptical. Like, in high school, I was like, he's cool, but I don't know if he's like a four-star after his freshman year, he deserves all the accolades and praise as well. And then James Houston yeah. on the other end has been just as dominant. But they're playing a tougher Prairie View team coming up in the SWAT championship. And I'm going to be honest, the way their offensive line is playing and the way Prairie View is, Prairie View is like this unique mixture of they're like a better version of Texas Southern in terms of pass is going to make those downfield throws and one-on-one coverage if he has time. They've got a running system with Brooks and those guys behind them. And then defensively, they've got a D-line that can get after Shador and terrorize him. So do you feel like the way they've played these last few weeks, is that good enough to be preview? Or they're going to have to up their ante a lot more to come out as wow. swag champs? I think they're going to have to play arguably their best game of the season to be preview. And I know, you know, I, you're talking to somebody who has been crowned a Jackson State hater by some, but, you know, I feel like it's more – I. Dude, there's some channels out there that are a little less, a little, I would say a little bit more biased than I am. I try to like keep it fair on both sides. But when you look at the matchup, I think Prairie View is the most balanced team they've faced in terms of passing, rushing, and defense. I mean, they might not be the best in any of those categories, but they're top five in like everything. And I don't think Jackson State's seen that. And you look at, you know, a Jawan pass, he's not going to be, I don't think he's going to be shook by the defense as much as some of these younger quarterbacks like an Andrew Body would. Andrew Body's coming along, but that's a tough ask for a freshman to go. But Jawan, Jawan Pass has played Alabama. He's played Clemson. He's played in these big moments before, and he's done it at the highest level. So for me, I don't think Jawan Pass is going to be shaken by a lot. And everyone just wants to, like, excuse Prairie View because they lost by two to Alcorn on the road. And I just – I don't think you could just shake them off – 
and everything. You know, Jawan Pass is hurt right now. We'll see. You know, I heard he's missing this weekend against Valley to rest up, you know, for Jackson State. So we'll see what that is. That's a whole other conversation. But if everyone's healthy, you know, Jawan Pass, I would say, is one of the best quarterbacks that Jackson State's seen this season. I think Brooks is one of the best running backs they've seen. The wide receiving core is disgusting in terms of the downfield ability that they have. So that's going to be a test. And then also, you mentioned the D-line, man. Jason Dumas is a problem at defensive tackle. He's a multi-time swack All-American, man. And he can wreak havoc. And the weaknesses for Jackson State are at the guard and center spot. So who's blocking them? And I just think if you get pressure up the middle on Shador and you can get those DNs up the field, Shador's going to be in a lot of, in a world of hurt if they don't pick it up. Now they get a week to prepare, which I think is going to play a large role. But the other matchup no one's talking about, everyone just gives Jackson State, they're going to sack the quarterback however many times they want. But Prayer View ranks number one in sacks allowed this year. I think they've allowed, if I'm off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure they've allowed less than 10 sacks this year. So, I mean, that's elite production. So that's it's going to be a strength versus strength matchup on that end. But then on the other side, it's a strength in the D-line versus a weakness of Jackson State. I don't think I don't think Jackson State's going to run over Prairie View like a lot of people think. A lot of people aren't giving Prairie View a shot in hell. And I just think that's short-sighted because if you look at the matchups, and, man, you've covered college ball, you know that a team that's 10-0, if they get a right, if they get a bad matchup against a 6-6 six and six team, it doesn't matter because they could take advantage of it. You look at an Oklahoma-Baylor situation. Dave Aranda has Oklahoma's number, has held Oklahoma to career lows in the last three times they faced him, and Baylor was 2-8 and eight last year and almost beat Oklahoma because of the matchup, because they got a strong defense. I think that's what you're going to see this weekend. And I really think this is a game where if Jackson State overlooks Prairie View, because as much as you have a week to prepare, you know how it is. You have a week to listen to the media. And I know you go watch these YouTube channels and Slack channels, and so do the players. I know a lot of the players support a lot of the YouTubers, because I talked to some of them. And all they're hearing is Jackson State's all world. If Jackson State got to the playoffs, they'd win the title and this and that. And this person's unblockable. This person's unguardable. Does that affect you at all? I don't know. And so for me, I think it's going to be a lot closer. I still would favor Jackson State as of right now. I want to see what the health of Juwan Pass and some of these players they lost against Texas A&M are. But right now, I would have a hard-pressed time finding Jackson State beating them by double digits if, if the game was this weekend. Yeah, I agree. You know, I got Jackson State winning, but I wouldn't be surprised if Prairie View came with the upset. And it's because Prairie View is like it's a unique mixture of like Texas Southern in terms of they got an option quarterback that can make the deep pass. And then Southern, they have the trench playing the offensive and defensive line to overwhelm you. And I saw them really just dominate Southern, who gave Jackson State problems on both ends of the offensive line and defensive line. They're able to run through them. They're able to get pressure. And the Jason Dumas factor, it's real, man. I mean, 13 tackles for loss, six and a half sacks, 14 quarterback hits this season. He's a menace in the middle of that D-line. And Jackson State has struggled to block any type of pressure, whether it's on the edge, in the interior, which means Shador Sanders is going to have a long day ahead. But, you know, Prairie View, it's it's huge. I mean, Juwan Pass has to be healthy. If he's not healthy, then everything we're talking about goes out the window. But he's an intriguing factor because I remember when he was at Louisville, his – legs were really the forefront of his talent at the FBS level. 
coming to the FCS level with Prairie He's improved as a downfield passer. So you're looking at a mature version of Andrew Body. And Andrew Body gave you problems with option option aspects of the team. And so if I'm Prairie View coming into this game with Jackson State, I implement an option-oriented aspect within our offense. Read option, triple option, just some dive plays to kind of keep their athletic but undisciplined at times linebackers at bay. And they have the offensive line to kind of generate that push and run through them. And for Jackson State, look, great season, but it would be a huge disappointment if you lose the SWAC championship because you have all this momentum. Everybody's crowning you as the guys. And then for Prairie View to come in and kind of upend you, but kind of put a huge damper on this season. And so Prairie View has a great shot. I, obviously, pass has to be healthy, but they've got the defense and they got the offensive line. I think with Jackson State, when you play them and you stated this, it's important to kind of hold your own in the trenches because their defensive line is relentless. If you're able to hold up and protect them, they run very generic coverages on the back end. It's a lot of man coverage. Their safeties kind of sink down and kind of protect the middle of the field in terms of like a run support of those underneath passes. So you're going to get a lot of favorable one-on-one coverages and you got to be able to take advantage of them. So that's important for pass. Big thing for Jackson State, the Weidman and Nugget, they have to play. They're able to get away with them not playing against Alcorn and they're able to beat Alcorn because Corbin went off, but if this is just Corbin out there again, Prairie View has the the defensive personnel to just bracket cover him and just let anybody else beat him, and then they'll attack the secondary that's not nugging. And those guys, Holmes and and those guys on the back end, they're struggling. So that's kind of my thing on that end. Yeah, and the number one thing for Jackson State is. Can you get, you know, you've been able to get away with being one dimensional against the Texas Southern as an atrocious defense. And, you know, Alabama AM was so bad that you were able to be two dimensional. You were able to get away with being one dimensional against FAMU because it was early in the season, able to do it against Southern because they're one dimensional. They can't throw the ball to save their life. I mean, you can put a gun to Jason Rollins' head, Ladarius Skelton, and Bubba probably not completing a downfield pass. And you did it against Alcorn because you were able to get pressure on Felix. And then they abandoned the run game with Statford Anderson for some reason, which was a terrible you know, game plan. But can you be one-dimensional? That's a question. And then also Jackson State's run defense hasn't been outstanding over the past few weeks. Going into this weekend, they allowed three straight 100-yard rushers. And Texas Southern, eight at eight against that defensive front. I mean, their running back ran for, what, uh, over 100 yards. They had almost 200-something yards rushing. That can't happen against Prairie View. You cannot allow, you know, Brooks to go for 150 and then pass, have his type of game. So, for me, it's a big question on whether can you survive being one-dimensional against a team like a Prairie View A&M, and that's going to be a big question. But they did get lucky, though. It's in the vet. And I think right now that home field advantage is right up there with one of the best in the SWAC. And so how are they going to respond? And also you have some question marks with Prairie View, with Prairie View too, that Incarnate Word game sticks out to me so much. I mean, a 40 to nine loss to Incarnate Word is not what, I mean, they've come a long way, but that, that, that worries me a little bit. And then you look at the Alcorn game in the first half, if you start that slow against Jackson State, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So for me, I want to see what type of prayer view team we get early on in that matchup too. And I think that's going to play a large role in who wins that game. I agree. You don't want the slow starts of your prayer view uh, that contributed to the defeat from Alcorn. But if they kind of come out how they did against Southern, they have a great chance. And, you know, Jackson State, they're not going to adjust. They're not going to switch anything up. So far this year, they're getting by with just being who they are. 
The issue is they're not as talented at these key positions where they're just rolling out these man coverage concepts or running these kind of rudimentary routes because they haven't kind of got that recruiting class in that they're probably going to get eventually. But, you know, man coverage, you got to win it. You got to win a pass, has to make the throws, receivers have to make the catches. But I agree with that running defense sentiment. Valley ran on them very well, and I think that's been a domino effect ever since then. And that's a Valley team where Jelani Easton's very inconsistent as a passer. So Caleb Johnson was their offense, and he ran very, very, very productively against them. And so after that against Texas Southern, that was kind of the same thing. And then against Southern, they were able to run productively against them and then Alcorn as well. So Prairie View is going to be able to run the football well. Ultimately, though, on a third down and six or five, because you're not going to have these third downs where it's third and short where all right, it's third and short, we can run our option and keep it moving. These third and five, those third and mediums, making those contested throws and making those accurate passes against man coverage is important. But I give Prairie View a pretty, pretty big chance. And from there on, we're going to move to the FCS playoffs. And so we talked about Southeastern Louisiana against FAMU. I want to really speak on the favorites, the teams that kind of have buys. And I want to start based on Sam Houston State. They're the defending champs from the spring. They bring back all of their starters from that team. And they've went undefeated. Now, a lot of guys have said, you know, they went undefeated. That's great. Schedule hasn't been as strong. So a lot of people are skeptical in terms of how dominant they truly are. But their defense is allowing 17 points a game. And Eric Schmidt's got 26 scores, 2,000 yards passing. They've they've been productive all year. So at this point, do you feel heading into the playoff, they're shooing for the national championship? Or could these other higher seeds below them trip them up before they get there? Uh, I would say if they get past like their region, like that, their side of the bracket and get into like, you know, like the semifinals or something like that. If they get to the semifinals, they're, they're a shoe in, but I I feel like their bracket's kind of tough, but you know, the reason I say the semifinals, they would be a shoe in. I don't think sacred heart, Holy Cross, Villanova, Sac State, South Dakota State, any of those teams are going to compete. UC Davis is on the bottom of that bracket too. When you look at their region, uh, I think this weekend I'm just going to kind of spoil my, one of my predictions. I think Incarnate Word gets past Stephen F. Uh, Stephen F. Austin this weekend. Incarnate Word, Cameron Ward is a problem at quarterback. That team's been clicking. It was a, it's one of the teams that was in the Southland with um, with, with uh, Southeastern Louisiana. They had a great game together. But I think Incarnate Word is going to be an interesting matchup for them. The defense isn't great, but can Cameron Ward and that explosive Incarnate Word offense get going against Sam Houston and put some pressure on Smid and, you know, um, Ezard at wide receiver, this offense to put up some points. I think that's going to be a tough matchup. And then you got Missouri State in that side of the bracket as well, coming out of the MVFC. They got some big wins. They've competed with North Dakota State, South Dakota State. They're battle tested and ready. They're not going to shy away from Sam Houston. But then there, there's the X factor, and that's Montana State. Coming out of the Big Sky, which in my opinion was the best comp was was one of the best conferences in the FCS this year. Eastern Washington, Montana, Montana State, Sac State, all those teams were one of the some of the top ten teams in the country. Montana State's interesting. They have a solid offensive game plan. They're very balanced, but their run game really sticks out, and their defense is outstanding. Their defense is fast, physical, and can create turnovers. I think Montana State can give Sam Houston a run for their money, but if Sam Houston State gets to the semifinals, they're smacking anybody in that bottom half of the bracket, and I think they'd be a shoe-in for the championship after that. But for me, we're going to find out what Sam Houston has next week. I think Incarnate Word's going to come in there and give them a nice run for their money, and then I think Montana State will meet them in the third round, and that will be their ultimate test on whether they're a real national championship contender or not. 
Great points indeed. I've seen Sam Houston State play a couple times and they win a multitude of ways. I mean, they could slug it out with you when you get grimy. Um, if they get down <laughs> a couple scores, they can match it, you know, offensively. So, and I have all your starters come back from that championship team a year ago helps yeah. in terms of moments like this with experiences and whatnot. So I expect them to make a deep run. And I, I, I you know, I think it, they're a lot to be in that semifinal final rope. But, you know, Incarnate Word is a unique matchup because of what they bring offensively as well. North Dakota State used to be the cream of the crop in the FCS playoff realm, and they still are. But um, yeah. they had a down year in the spring. They were kind of able to make up for it this year, running a dual quarterback system with Quincy Patterson and Cam Miller. Miller's more of the passer out of the two um, with the yardage and the touchdowns. But Quincy has taken most of the stat apps. So there's a rushing and passing element with their two quarterback system. Do they have a chance as the two second best seed overall to make the championship as well to possibly compete against the Sam Houston or is there a chance that they could kind of go out early and have another disappointing season like they did last year in the spring where they lost in the quarterfinal uh I I don't see any way North Dakota State doesn't get to the semifinals this year their side of the bracket is probably I would say one of the easiest because they get Southern Illinois or South Dakota next round that's two division teams they have experience playing they're going to murder them it, I don't think it's going to be close. They handled them in the regular season. They're going to handle them again. They got their number. And then on the other side of the bracket, it's Davidson or Kennesaw. I think Kennesaw will beat Davidson. And then ETSU and Kennesaw will be an interesting matchup. But I don't think a triple option attack is going to work against the North Dakota State. So if Kennesaw makes it, North Dakota State's handling Kennesaw fairly easily. And I just don't think ETSU has seen the caliber of team in their conference that they're going to see with North Dakota State. I think North Dakota State runs through their side of the bracket. I'm talking about untouched, and I would – there be a chance, man, to be completely honest with you, that North Dakota State doesn't see a game within 10 points in their side of the bracket. I think it's going to be that dominant. I expect to see a heavy dose of Patterson, but the key to this team is their one game in their defense. Their defense is smothering, man. I mean – they got some real talent on the D line. Those linebackers are fast. They play sideline to sideline. And like you said, it's a culture up there. They know what it takes to win championships. And championships are the expectation. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you're in North Dakota State, losing in the championship game is an F season. You have to win the championship to be something. And North Dakota State has won so many of these in the recent history. They don't remember teams who don't win. So you're going to be forgotten in history if you don't win a national championship, and they know that. And I think North Dakota State is on a mission right now because they know what happened last year. They know everyone is looking at the spring saying, oh, man, is the dynasty over? Is the dynasty dead? I, I, North Dakota State's my favorite right now, man. If I had to pick a team and bet my paycheck on it, I'm putting it on North Dakota State. I think they run through their bracket. Their toughest game, though, really and truly is going to be in the semifinals because that bottom that bottom right part of the bracket with UNI, Eastern Washington, FAMU, Southeastern Louisiana, James Madison, Montana, brutal, brutal side of the bracket. Whoever comes out of there is going to be a monster to face. And so I think the semifinals are going to be their first real test. And I trust North Dakota State to win two tough games rather than some of these teams having to be battle tested and worn down by the time they get to the end of the bracket. Last year, North Dakota State had a down year, eight and three. There's a lot of programs in the country would yeah, take that right. down year to be eight and three. And they lost to the eventual national champion, Sam Houston State Bearcats. So they're a lot focused and locked in this year. Like you stated, they've always been a dominant team with defense and a running game. That hasn't changed this year. And you got to go through the Fargo Dome to get to the chip. And they exactly. haven't lost in the Fargo Dome in the postseason since 2016. <laughs> it, it's, it's a tough road ahead. So I have them to be a lot for that final four spot as well. 
James Madison is probably in the more tougher bracket in the whole playoffs. Um, they prep for future FBS play, but right now, living in the moment, they're ten and one. Their only blemish was conference rival the Nova Wildcats lost to them. Uh, Cole Johnson has been their offensive engine, three thousand yards passing, two picks. However, their first playoff game will either be against the winner of FAMU Southeastern Louisiana. Is there a chance that they could be going home pretty quickly, kind of diminishing their opportunity to win the chip? No, uh, I, I think Jay's kind of said probably that they probably beat FAMU or Southeastern Louisiana by double digits. I don't even think it's a real I've I, I really it's because the matchup, man, because they're so balanced on the offensive side of the ball. They have an all-American running back, an all-American quarterback. Their defensive line is scary. Mike Green, the defensive end for James Madison, grown man. But to, I mean, I'm talking about like like James Houston level of talent coming off of Mike Green. And so I think in terms of Southeastern Louisiana, they, they would get just ransacked because they wouldn't be able to hold the D line. And for me, I don't think they'd be able to stop James Madison. And I I, I just, I think it would be a stylistic matchup that Southeastern Louisiana wouldn't be ready for. And for FAMU, the, the James Madison defense is so good that Rashawn McKay would have nightmares about the purple running around his room at night because that that's that's the type of matchup it would be. They would they would eat that team alive. They would shut down the run, and it'd be Rashawn McKay having to play air raid, and it's just that, that's never a recipe for success for Whitley Simmons team. I think James Madison is a stylistic matchup nightmare for both FAMU and Southeastern Louisiana. Now, the other side of the bracket, UNI versus Eastern Washington. It, in Montana, those three teams over there, those are the problems. Montana, especially Montana. Listen, I know, I know the swag people always like to make fun of like who wants to play in Montana. They got some dogs in Montana. Don't I promise you, no one wants to see Montana in this. I mean, they going into I believe it was like week nine or ten. They were average. They were only allowing like seven points a game at one point. I mean, that defense was. A problematic their linebackers are some of the best in the country and their offense is also can be explosive as well now you and i eastern washington i think i'm, I'm excited for that matchup eric barrier is my it just he was on my show and me and him were like cool so like he's my favorite player in the fcs just my little bias there i think he's the best player in the fcs but i think eastern washington beats you and i and that sets up a big a big game eastern washington montana was the game that got flexed to espn too it was played on the red turf up there in Washington. It's going to be in Montana now. Montana always ranks in the top five in FCS attendance and has been recorded to be the loudest stadium at the FCS level this year. No joke going to play up there. It's going to be cold. They're not in a dome. They said you're going to be out in the negative 15 degree weather up in Montana. And so I think that's going to be a crazy matchup. I still think Eric Barrier can get them past Montana. I think James Madison is on track to face Eastern Washington. And that is going to be my favorite matchup of, of the playoffs, man. Eric Barrier against that defense of James Madison. And then we're going to find out what Eastern Washington has on defense. Their defense is a has 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 a few holes. We're going to find out if they can if they can hold that James Madison offense down. But for me, if James Madison, Eastern Washington, Montana, those are probably my three picks to potentially come out of the side of the bracket. Whoever comes out, it, it's it's going to be like they went through war, man. They are going to be battle tested. They are going to be ready for anything they see in the semifinals. Now, the only question is, are they going to have the gas and the juice to get to that championship game? But coming out of this, I think this right here would be the hardest side of the bracket, in my opinion, with these teams, because you have FAMU, the number one defense in the country. You have 
the Cole Kelly and Eric Berrier, the two Walter Payton award-winning quarterbacks. You have UNA, who is who has played like I think almost every single opponent they've played has been ranked this year. They're battle tested. Montana has an elite defense. James Madison is one of the best teams in the country, been a top three team all year. This bracket has so much NFL potential and so many matchups that I want to see. But I think right now I would say James Madison and Eastern Washington have the best chances to come out. But if one of the but if one of these top three seeds, I would say the Sam Houston, North Dakota State, James Madison, I think James Madison is at most at risk of not making the semifinals, but I would be shocked if they lost their first game. I just don't think FAMU or Southeastern Louisiana is, is going to match up with them very well and be able to pull that one off, especially in James Madison. That would be a tough one because they have one of the best environments in college football. They don't have a huge stadium, but I promise you it's going to be loud. It's going to be packed out, and that team is not going to be afraid of the moment. So I would say James Madison gets past the first round, man, but the semifinals in the third round are going to be where they could be in trouble because I totally think Montana or Eastern Washington could upset James Madison in the playoffs. Great points, great points indeed. Now we're going to the feel-good stories. Sacramento State, you kind of touched based on it a little bit. Um, they, from the big sky, they're getting their second ever FCS playoff berth in school history. They run their two quarterback system with the arm of arm of Jake Dunaway. He's got almost 2,300 yards passing. The legs of Asher O'Hara. He's got 656 yards on the ground. But however, the last time they were in the FCS playoff, they were upset at home, and a potential second round showdown with South Dakota State or UC Davis doesn't look the most favorable. Can they get to the quarterfinals, or are they, are they one and done once again as a program? I think they're one and done, man. If there's a top eight seed that I don't see making it past the second round is Sac State. I mean, because listen, if, if UC Davis upsets South Dakota State, Sac State has a great chance to get into the quarterfinals. I think that would be their best case scenario. They don't want to see South, South Dakota State. They don't. Listen, South Dakota State, you know, if, you know, that's the thing is I, I wish more people would watch FCS football because now there's a lot of people whose teams are making it who don't know anything about these other teams. And they just look at the records and say, oh, trash garbage well South Dakota State not garbage regardless of what their record is that team has an experienced quarterback who was committed to FAMU and Chris Ola Duncan Chris Ola Duncan saw South Dakota State play in the championship last year and ended up deciding to decommit from FAMU to go play for them so don't I don't want anyone to tell me the FCS playoffs don't matter because I've heard that argument a lot it matters to these recruits and everything. So he's a transfer from Sanford. He's a sixth-year guy. He's not going to be afraid of the moment. This team is mostly all the same. Outside of that, they have the best running back, I believe, in Pierre at, at running back. He's, he's, he's a monster. Pierre Strong, he was a Walter Payton Award finalist for a running back. He's going to be a problem. I think South Dakota State's defense and offense is extremely balanced. They were battle-tested through the MVFC. And so for me, if South Dakota State gets to that second round, they're beating Sacramento State. Because Sacramento State, you know, went through, went through the um, big sky. They didn't play Eastern Washington. They didn't play Montana. They, they got lucky. Their schedule worked out perfectly because there's not divisions up there. So they didn't get battle tested. I don't think I, I would have a tough time seeing Sac State beat South Dakota State. I would pick South Dakota State probably nine times out of 10 in that game. I saw South Dakota State play for the first time against Colorado State to start the year. And Dominated. they just a different. They're Dominated. a different beast. They're a different beast. Um, <laughs> the quarterback, Chris, he controlled the pace of the game. They just ran it down Colorado State's throat. They out-physicalized an FBS opponent. They took them to the woodshed and broke their spirits. And so Sacramento State, you know, they're a cool story, but I don't know if physically they can just match up with that overpowering Bruce Strength that no. South Dakota State brings 
offensively and defensively. And, man, in the trenches in football, it's a really important battle to win. And if you just don't have the physicalness or the tangible elements to match up to that, you're going to get brought to the woodshed and beat to death. And so I think with Sac State, cool run, but I see history repeating themselves once again. That's not a good matchup to have South Dakota State drawed as your first matchup coming out of the box. <laughs> it's not good at all. Um, yeah. Nova, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was about to say, yeah, that's that's brutal for them, man. Anybody else, and, like, if you're looking for a team in the first round who can make a run to the national championship, South Dakota State's that team. South Dakota State, and I think Eastern Washington would be my two picks out of the first round that could realistically make a run to the national championship. And for Sac State to get them, that's brutal. Yeah, up next, Nova. Um, I was surprised this year that I recognized that they do have a football program. We all know about the Villanova Wildcats in basketball, but they made it to the FCS playoffs, seeded for the first time in seven years. 92 campaign, highlighted by an upset against James Madison and conference rival. The rushing duo of Justin Covington and Jalen Jackson is phenomenal. They're just as productive behind the solid quarterback play of Daniel Smith. And after their one-point victory against James Madison, do they have what it takes to go against the big dogs in the FCS playoffs when it matters in tournament play? Um. I would say they got a lucky draw. They get Sacred Heart or Holy Cross in the second round, and I think they could beat both of those teams. Those teams come from, you know, smaller FCS conferences, and they haven't seen this level. I think Villanova gets through them. I think where it gets tricky for them is if they get like a if they get like a South Dakota State in that in that quarterfinal. They get sac- if they get South Dakota State, man, that's going to be a tough one. But if they get lucky and they get no sacred heart advancing and they beat them and they get a Sac State or a UC Davis, they absolutely can find themselves going to, you know, the semifinals or something like that. But then once they get to the semifinals, man, I think that's where that, I think that's where the Cinderella story stops because you're going to probably get a Sam Houston State. You're going to get a Montana State and that's going to probably be where your story ends. I think they're a good team. Like you said, they're run first, but for me, they haven't been overly impressive in my opinion. When I watch their film, it doesn't really pop off the screen for me and to win a national championship nowadays in FCS football you have to have that guy or like that team that pops off the screen and I just don't see it with Villanova so I'd be hard-pressed to see them winning the championship but depending on how things work out in their bracket I can definitely see them making probably a ceiling run to the semifinals and I would after that if anything more than a semifinal run you might as well extend that coach because that's going to be impressive to make it any further than the semifinals. Yeah, I agree. They got a lucky draw, Sacred Heart, Holy Cross. I think they could beat them. I think having a rushing tandem and really balanced offensively helps them a lot. Beating a James Madison, a conference rival, kind of is a great measuring stick to see how you match up against future powerhouses in the FCS. But playoff football is a different feel. Pretty sure if they play James Madison again, it might be a different story. But, yeah. you know, they've been, a, they've been a nice run. But good news is, unlike Sac State, they should win a playoff game. But I think outside of that, extending it beyond is different. You were really high on this team, and they're up next in Montana. I remember seeing them against Washington, being a ranked Washington team, kind of set the tone for their season, and then they demolished Montana State um, in the Battle of the Wild, kind of to end their season. Redshirt freshman Chris Brown came in when their starter was out. He held the fort, but then when Cam Humphrey came back, the team continued to roll down the stretch. Can the Grizzlies' momentum as a football team continue in the FCS playoffs? So, I mean, especially if they can – continue to be healthy. I, I think, you know, it's going to be a tough matchup with Eastern Washington, though, man. I think Eastern Washington will be their second-round matchup. And, man, to face Eric Berrier again, 
and give him another shot at you is just going to be brutal for them. And so I really think that they could be another team that lose in the first round just because they drew a conference opponent that's already beaten them. But if they get past Eastern Washington, I, I think they'll give James Madison a run, like I mentioned earlier. I definitely think that they have semifinal hopes. I just don't know if their offense is strong enough to go up against a North Dakota State in the semifinals. That's That would be a bad matchup for them moving forward. But for me, if they get past Eastern Washington, that's going to give them a lot of momentum. And I think they would play James Madison tough. But if I had to put money on it, I think the quarterfinals is probably their ceiling against James Madison. And really and truly, I think they're another you know, seeded team that lose in the first round. Because I really think if Eastern Washington can get at them again, Eastern Washington will win that game. Yeah, I mean, Montana, you know, pretty good defensive team. I think defense is where they kind of put their calling court on offensively. They've had different quarterbacks coming out the lineup. They've held for it a little bit, but you can't win with just a defensive first team, a championship. You got to be balanced in some aspects. Um, and if anything, yeah, there's a saying defense wins championships, and they do. But if your offense doesn't have some level of explosiveness, you're kind of set, signing your death note, to say the least. But, you know, Montana, they can get a couple of playoff wins, to say the least. But, um. Phenomenal season for them really to kind of start the year off being a Washington Husky team that a lot of people had winning the Pac-12. And that kind of set the tone for their season and they follow suit throughout the year. Um, Eastern Tennessee State University, they went 10 and 1, but they just got into the playoff outright winning the SoCon to be the seventh seed and they get their first round by. But they're a run first team to say the least as well. Quay Holmes leads the chart for them, 1,400 yards rushing. They got a ground attack that will more than likely be the key to their longevity. But that, that's what they are. They're a run-first football team. Do they have other aspects of explosiveness offensively to stay alive in the playoff long enough, or are they also another one-and-done component? Uh, it depends. If, if somehow they can get Davidson in the second round, they absolutely could go and face North Dakota State most likely. But for me, I think Kennesaw would be a brutal matchup for them. Kennesaw runs that triple option attack. They're so explosive, and Kennesaw has such a stout defense that I think it would give this defense a lot of troubles because they already don't generate a lot of explosive plays, and Kennesaw is going to drain the clock, wear down your defense, and only give you a handful of possessions. So can they make those possessions count? I think Kennesaw would be I, – I would find it hard for them to make it any further than, a, than, than like the quarterfinals, in my opinion. Uh, but for me, I think they have a potential to lose in the second round if they get Kennesaw State because Kennesaw State is no joke. And really and truly, ETSU struggled with Mercer last week a lot. And I just, I just don't think that if you play like you did last week, if you're ETSU, that you have national championship, you know, aspirations. But for me, if they can get past their, you know, small little bracket and they go in and face the court in the quarterfinals, North Dakota State, I think North Dakota State blows their doors off. That's one of that's one of the blowouts of the quarterfinals, in my opinion, just because North Dakota State's defense is going to suffocate you. Quincy Patterson is explosive. Their run game's explosive, and they 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 have a defense that will turn turnovers into touchdowns and that's just a recipe for disaster for ETSU I think their road ends in the second round of the quarterfinals for sure they have a tough they have a tough bracket anytime you're in North Dakota State's bracket in the playoffs you have a tough road and then you add a Kennesaw State which is a weird a triple option attack strong defense then you also have a Davidson that has a lot of athletes that can really be surprising I think I think ETSU got a really unlucky draw to be the seven seed this year yeah, I'm looking to draw indeed. Um, playing a team like Kennesaw State would suck because they're just like you. They run the ball, but they run it just as good, if not better, with their triple option attack. Then they're a sound oh. defensive team. And one of the kind of uh, 
unfortunate aspects of being a team that's so running back focused, having a guy like that in your backfield is once you take the running element out of your game plan, you, if you don't have that explosive element in the passing game, that's all she wrote. And that's the biggest thing with ETSU, how they played against Mercer just to get in, barely beating them. Isn't the greatest sign. They do get a buy in a home playoff game, but it's all about matchups. I don't know if they'll have the best matchup to say the least. Montana state is the eighth and final seed led by a stout scoring defense. They've allowed only 20 points once all season. They have a ground attack led by Isaiah, who has almost 1,300 yards rushing. Matthew McKay's a dual threat quarterback. But Montana detonated them to end the year. So that's not the greatest feeling to say the least heading into the playoffs. But if they have a chance to do it all over again and play them again, which could be a possibility, could they beat them? And when it comes to their playoff longevity throughout the season, can they make it last? Or how they finish the season is something to say the least in the postseason. Um, I think they can definitely get past UT Martin or Missouri State, whoever they face next round. I think overall they're a better team. And for Missouri State and UT Martin to have to go up and play in Montana, in that weather, uh, in that tough stadium, I, I find it extremely hard for either of those teams to go up there and win it. Now, can you count out Bobby Petrino? I don't know. That's a great coach at the FCS level. But when you look at the matchup with Sam Houston State, that's going to be so tough for Missouri State to win I mean, or, or Montana State to win. They're going to have to play their best game of the season to win that one. And, you know, they match up well. They have a great defense, like you said, only 20 points once. But when I look at Sam Houston compared to a, Mon a Montana that they faced, they're very similar, except Sam Houston has a way better offense. So I think I think their road would end in the quarterfinals. But if they get past Sam Houston, man, I don't think you can ever count them out. And then you get the winner of Villanova, Sac State, maybe a South Dakota State. If they can avoid South Dakota State in the semifinals, I think you're talking about a real deal national championship contender in Montana State. So I think their longevity rests solely on that Sam Houston game and that, and that alone. Because if, they, if you can beat Sam Houston at Sam Houston in, in the quarterfinals, I, I wouldn't count Montana State out against anybody else in the bracket. So I think that's going to be the key game for them in, in determining, you know, uh, who, you know, I guess their longevity in the playoffs and their national championship hopes this year. You brought up incarnate word, brought up South Dakota State. And in the opening round, we have multiple matchups where teams are going to be competing to play against the teams that have buys. And so out of all those matchups, and you have plenty coming up Friday, Saturday, and whatnot. Which team are you comfortable feeling can not just last beyond a couple weekends, but make a deep championship push that doesn't have a bye, but is instead playing in the opening round? I would say Eastern Washington and South Dakota State would be my two picks if I had to put money on it. Eastern Washington gets a five and five UNI team that has been battle tested, but I still think Eastern Washington will win that game. They get a Montana team they've already beaten. And so I think they at least could easily get against James Madison. And then what could Eric Berrier do in that matchup? I don't know. That's a cross-country game, though. That'd be tough. But South Dakota State, for sure, man. UC Davis is probably a, a win for them. I think they can definitely beat Sac State. I definitely think they can beat Villanova. Sacred Heart and Holy Cross isn't even on that level. So I think right now, if, if, you, get past Sac, if you get past UC Davis, if you're South Dakota State, I think they're semifinal bound, in my opinion. 
if, as long as they play their type of football, no injuries or anything weird like that. But South Dakota State and Eastern Washington would be my two picks of first round teams that can make it to the semifinals and or championship game. And Eastern Washington has done it before. And so is South Dakota State. So I wouldn't count them out in the slightest, especially South Dakota State coming in this year knowing they can get there after getting there last year and being one play away from winning the championship just a handful of months ago. Yeah, I agree. South Dakota State, they're so complete. They were in the championship game last year. Um, out of all the teams in the opening round, they have the best chance to get back. They have that same core, same philosophy, physical team, balance, run first, kind of overwhelm you with the defensive presence and offensive power. They're a great bet. And then Eastern Washington has the explosiveness offensively where they can score anyone most more points you can score, the more you can stay in the football game. So they're the two best teams. I think they have a chance to make deep runs. I think all matchups are unique. I'm kind of interested to see all of them, not just with the FAMU element, but to see all these teams battle against one another to see how they can maybe project the matchup with these other powerhouses in the FCS. So with that, I'd say with the FCS playoff analysis on that end. And uh, before we wrap this podcast up, Blue, want to really talk about the pro element that all these teams have in terms of prospects and whatnot. The East-West Shrine game's coming up. The Senior Bowl you alluded to is coming up. I saw guys like the Kobe Durant and Marquise Bell get, you know, offers to attend the East-West Shrine game. Both of them accepted. Um, Let's focus on the SWAT aspect. Which prospects do you feel have a chance to not just get drafted, but to make have huge impacts at the pro level wherever they land within the organization? Mm, In the SWAT, I would say it starts with James Houston, man. James Houston's by far the best NFL prospect, I think, or pop, maybe even in FCS right now. And so I think right now he would be the number one out of the swag. I think he would give Marquise Bell number two. And then number three is kind of in the air, man. There's a lot of players who are good, but you see a lot of holes in their game right now. So those would be the two I would feel comfortable saying right now. James Houston is a power five type player, man. Let's just be completely honest. I mean, he could have been at Florida this year competing in the SEC, came to Jackson State, lived up to all the hype in the world. And so for me, I think James Houston is going to be a game wrecker. I said on my show that I think I can see him being as high as a second round pick this year. And I think he could be an instant contributor wherever he goes, if he goes to the right situation. Now, you know, is he going to be able to stay at DN? I'm not sure, but I think he'll find a way onto a roster. Now, I also think that, you know, in terms of Marquise Bell, in terms of measurables, he's the best prospect in the SWAC. I mean, he's got the size, the speed, the production. And I think right now Marquise Bell could be a third-round pick as well. I think when you look at his body of work, He's been an NFL prospect for, what, three years now? I mean, that kid has done it at the highest level. And so for me, I think those two would be my picks out of the swag to be instant contributors that I could see actually lasting in the NFL. And then in terms of everyone else, I think Akil and and those type players are probably going to fall really late in the draft and possibly even undrafted free agents because I think what what you're going to see this year is a resurgence of you know, just in terms of overall SCS talent. So I think there's going to be a lot of players from North Dakota State, Eastern Washington, so-and-so get on drafted. And I just think right now when you look at the quarterback class, it's it's going to be deeper than people expected with a, you know, a Matt Corral, um, a, a Sam Howell, a, a Kenny Pickett. And then at the FCS level, you have Cole Kelly, Eric Barrier, who are arguably two of the best quarterbacks of all time at this level. So I think that's what hurts like a keel glass of some of these quarterbacks coming out. But if I had to say right now, I would say, I would say Marquise Bell and James Houston are my two picks to be surefire NFL prospects. 
Yeah, I think James Houston for sure is an NFL prospect by far. I think his ability to play both linebacker and DM was important. Coming to Jackson State, they wanted him to play with his hand in the dirt, and he succeeded very well. But I do think at the next level, he's more of a pass rushing 3-4 outside linebacker. And you can never have enough of those. I mean, we see what the Rams have with the likes of, you know, on their end, on their edge. You know, they obviously got Von Miller, but, you know, guys on the other end that aren't Von, what they're able to bring to the table. Uh, so you can never have enough of those guys. Um, so he's obviously, I think, a shoe in for sure. I'm looking at a guy like a Marquise Bell. The hype was immense coming into the season. Everybody thought he was the best HBCU prospect to get drafted. That translated very well for FAMU. He played relatively well. I think his coverage skills are solid. He has a nose for the football, and he can tackle. You can never get enough safeties like that. They're just complete. They can do everything very well because that matters in a more pass-happy NFL league. Kamari Everett was very solid. His measurables are insane. Um, what he was able to do productively-wise in a Bethune-Cookman offense that was a quarterback carousel was phenomenal. I think just off his measurables and upside alone, he'll probably be a mid-round pick as well to go to yeah. a team like a like maybe a L.A. Rams because that's basically all the picks that they have. Yeah. <laughs> I think I can see a team like the Rams getting Kamari Everett and plugging him in. And that offense with Stafford and whatnot, imagine what Sean McVay can do with him. I mean, the sky's the limit there. And I think Akil, I think the hype he's gotten, you know, getting drafted would be great. But I do think he's more of an undrafted free agent type that I think can find yeah. a way to stay in the league for a long time because he knows the game. He's got the accuracy when he has time. I think the things that will hold him back is he's not mobile. And under pressure, the accuracy wanes immensely. It, it does. Um, but I think the swag, man, they have great talent all around. I think you have guys that who have a chance to get into the draft make noise. And I think guys waiting down the pipeline, like a Shador Sanders and whatnot, have talent. Um, from the JSU realm, uh, Keith Corbin, who is a senior, he'll be eligible for the draft. He's a unique talent as well. I think he could be productive in the pros. Um, he's got sure hands. He's explosive. He can run solid routes. But I think in the swag realm, they got talent. And I think everybody has, an, has a chance to make the league that has the upside to do so. But I think those guys that you said straight on were phenomenal. Oh, Aubrey Miller. Now, I know Aubrey Miller is kind of hate or love because I think everybody acknowledges he's not great in coverage. But he reminds me a lot of like a bigger version of Devin White. Devin White at Tampa is not a great coverage guy. As a matter of fact, Tampa's at their best when Levante Davis in the middle and kind of Devin White's playing off ball. And that's a role I think Auburn Miller would be on a team like hypothetically, let's say he played for like the Saints where, you know, Demario Davis is established in the middle. So that means Aubrey Miller doesn't have to worry about making the calls, the keys, covering it, covering the guy out the backfield, running back wise. He can come in and kind of be the blitzer, the run supporter. He'll be phenomenal in that role. He has the size and the physical measurements and whatnot, and the physicality. He's He'd be great at the pro level, but you do have to have some aspect of coverage ability at the very least. So he's got to develop that. But I think he'd be solid in the NFL. That's kind of like an off-ball linebacker in a 4-3 on the field for run blitzes and um, pass rushes, to say the least, at the pro level. Yeah, I mean, I can see him you know, having a spot. I don't know, you know, it's it's. it's I'm not going to lie, it's a really deep linebacking class. That's kind of why, like, I think he's going to fall down. I would see him probably being like a sixth, seventh round pick at best right now, just because of how deep the linebacking classes in terms of FCS and FBS level right now. But I, I absolutely think he, he he has a place. And so I think Keontae might have a place as well. And I even think a Warren Newman, I can't ever see him get drafted, but as a special teams guy, I think he could find a way onto a roster as an undrafted free agent. I think Nugget has potential 
But based on this year, I think he needs to come back one year. So I think next year will be the year that Nugget really establishes himself in the NFL draft because I think he missed too many games due to discipline things and just overall, like, just put him on the field, man, because that kid's got so much talent. So I think he needs one more year to prove to the scouts that he can focus himself enough to be at that next level. And I mean – in the future, there's so many people. I like how you mentioned Kamari Everett. I think he's going to be a, a solid draft pick. He'd probably be my number three guy. But then in the future, man, you mentioned Sh- you mentioned Shador, Shiloh. I think Malachi Wadman is probably going to be, I think in my opinion, Malachi Wadman's the best future NFL draft pick in the SWAC right now in terms of measurables and things like that. And then, I mean, even on other teams, I mean, a Bishop Bonnet, an Isaiah land. I mean, you can go down the line. I mean, Southern has, has multiple offensive linemen that could probably find their way to the league. Alabama state with the earshot Davis. I think Jav- uh, uh, Jacquez Payton at corner for them is, is also solid. I would like to see Ezra have a better year, but Ja'Cory Merritt could be a guy in the future that you could see slide into the running back spot. So I think there's talent all over the swag that could eventually find their way to the NFL draft. You look at, and you know, Andrew Body's probably a bit too small, but even on Prairie Review, Dumas, a defensive tackle, has a future. I think you know, uh, the, the running back for Texas Southern, I'm blanking on his name. He probably even has a future um, at the next level. So for me, I think there's a lot of players you can look at in the future that the SWAC is going to have a long pipeline of NFL prospects coming down, co- coming down the line over the next few years. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, there's immense NFL talent within the SWAC. So I got future talent down the line. How they develop will kind of dictate where they project, but it's there. And you hit the hit around in there with Nugget. I was really disappointed in terms of what he wasn't really able to provide consistently. A lot of that was he just wasn't on the field. But, you know, when he was on the field, you could see the talent and the upside. And, you know, with him coming back for another year, I think submitting himself on the field, being consistent, will help his stock immensely. But, you know, everybody else that you stated, you know, Shador, his development, Shiloh, his development. Um, I really like Cameron a lot at the safety spot. He's kind of a do-everything guy. Not the greatest in coverage, but – Gives me like Buddha Baker vibes. He's small and he's undersized. Yeah. He packs a huge punch. He wants to be around the football. He wants to make plays. That helps a lot. And then other you know teams in the swag, Caleb Johnson, just a sophomore. His ability to yeah. run behind that Valley offensive line isn't the greatest, but he's always able to move forward and get key yards. Helps a lot. So sky's the limit. Swag's got a ton of talent. And what this NFL draft process has shown throughout the years is if you have talent, scouts will come and find you. And we know what Deion Sanders provides for the swag is his lead connections, which means he'll open the door for a lot of programs by just saying, yo, this kid right here, when we played him was a monster, come check him out and they will follow suit because of that. So that helps a lot to say the least. Yeah. I mean, I I think overall the swag has to find a way. And I mean, and I've mentioned it on my show and, I, I, the number one thing is like you can't let the momentum go to waste. You have to be promoting these guys. You have to be doing your due diligence to put them in front of the biggest crowds, the most eyes, and making sure they can take advantage of all this positive momentum because ultimately getting players drafted and getting new players in that can be drafted is the best way to take advantage of this positive momentum. So uh, I think the I think us, if you're a SWAC fan, you have to put pressure on the coaches, administrators, ADs, everything to keep pushing this positive momentum forward because you can't let it go to waste and you can't let the people who are running the SWAT become lazy and complacent because complacency is going to get you left behind in college football. So you have to take advantage of it. You do indeed. And things like the HBCU Legacy Bowl, 
which will premiere February 19th on NFL Network. That's a start. That's a big start. Yep. And having guys like Mahomes and Aaron Donald sponsor it, Jameis Winston back in and be like, yo, want to be a part of this, want to sponsor it. That's going to heighten stuff up even more, which allows people to see different talents from all HBCU lands, not just in the SWAC, but in Division II, three, the MEAC all over will open the door for those guys to come through. But you're right. Uh, eventually, guys like Deion Willie Simmons, they'll leave. But these programs have prestige. They have history. And instead of just always kind of being nothing against these guys, but that old head, like I remember back in the 80s when Walter Payton went here, you want to continue that lineage going on present day. And they have talent. Like I've watched these SWAT games, whether it's JSU versus who they play or Southern, Grambling, those matchups, you see it. And a lot of these teams like a FAMU or Grambling, a Southern, they have these talented players and they have elements within their team that's solid, like Southern being such a powerful frontline team that, you know, establishes what they are offensively running the football. Give those offensive linemen a look. Give Southern stable running backs a look at the pro level. Give guys that are productive in unique situations like Valley and Texas Southern, which is a Caleb Johnson at Valley, Texas Southern, what they have. Give them looks, and that will go a long way indeed. So, you know, I think that's going to happen, and that's going to hide things even more because you don't just want to leave it up to the – limited prime time you know viewing viewership moments that you have which is guys see swag people playing a swag championship in the celebration bowl and that's it you know mm-hmm. and i think it's up to kind of the university to promote these guys and you do that through social media you do that through the connect that you do have from guys that may know a cat on the roster professionally and that'll go a long way indeed yeah uh, i completely agree with you man i mean it goes back to like the first thing we talked to and it's uh, I talked about at least and that's you know, we got to find a way to keep it going and we got to keep finding ways to improve. I think there's a lot of complacency among fans sometimes where it's like we've done this for this long. So that's got to be the way we do it for forever. And like that's not how you keep up with college because that's an ever changing sport and ever changing landscape. And uh, I just I just feel like right now we we have to get out of the mindset of like, you know, the, the way it's been done for however many years is the way it should be done forever, man. You got to keep moving forward. And I think that that's, that's where the old heads, new people, everything can come together and, you know, make it overall, just make overall improvement slowly, but surely and keep this momentum going. Now, before we go, I want to dabble into a pivot going from FCS to FBS. And so I know you're an Auburn fan. Hasn't been the greatest year for your Tigers, oh, but man. in the S, but in the SEC overall, I'm just gonna be honest. Hasn't been a great year for the SEC overall. If you're not the Georgia Bulldogs, and so as we look at the playoff aspect in a nutshell, there's been talks maybe they may go to 12 teams moving forward next year. Who knows? But living in the moment now, uh, because the SEC has been so lackluster, it prov- it provides a team for like Cincinnati to have a chance to get to the playoff. And so when you look at the playoff rankings, kind of figuring out themselves, we know. The rivalry game between Ohio State and Michigan is going to decide out of those two who's going to probably represent the Big Ten in the playoff. And we know in the SEC championship, if Georgia wins, that probably knocks Bama out. If Bama wins, then that means Georgia and Bama both get in. Um, Does a team like a Cincinnati, does a team like a Notre Dame have a chance to get into the playoff if everything kind of works itself out amicably, which means to me Georgia wins the SEC, which means cements their spot. You know, whoever wins Ohio State, Michigan wins the Big Ten, which cements their spot. And then Cincinnati runs the table, and then Notre Dame does what they have to do. And the Big 12 kind of works itself out as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, for Cincinnati, you know, the, the I think the selection committee starts picking in like an hour or so, maybe t- 10 minutes. I don't remember what time it is tonight. But um, 
for me, they're gonna, they should be at number four tonight. So they should be in if they win out. The number one thing they can't have happen for me, though, is Oklahoma State win the Big 12, and they can't have Alabama beat Georgia. That, that would be detrimental to everything they want to do. And they also, you know, because uh, I think Ohio State will win out. You know, I think they'll beat Michigan this weekend. They'll probably dominate Wisconsin most likely in the Big Ten championship. So they'll be in. For me, if Alabama beats Georgia, I don't think you could say Georgia doesn't belong in the final four with one loss, especially with how dominant they've been this year, which means three spots will be locked up, which is why Oklahoma State's so important. They're slowly climbing up. Their one loss was just one upset loss in the middle of the season, and they've, they're have a one-loss Big 12 champ with multiple top 25 wins, and I think the committee would justify putting them up over a Cincinnati. Now, for Notre Dame to get in, you would need the situation you just mentioned. You would have to have Georgia beat Alabama convincingly. And how they, I think it would have to be a blowout. Bama would drop out. You would have Georgia, Ohio State, and undefeated Cincinnati, and probably a one-loss Notre Dame. And that's if what would have to happen is probably Oklahoma State win this, or Oklahoma would have to beat Oklahoma State this weekend. They would play again in the Big 12 championship, and then you would need Oklahoma State to beat Oklahoma. So you would have a two-loss Big 12 champ. The Pac-12 is already out. And so then your final four would be Georgia, Ohio State, Cincinnati, and Notre Dame. And that would be how those two teams got in. But for this year, man, I think it was a big year for Cincinnati even to have a shot. And that double-digit win on the road against Notre Dame did them wonders, and that was a game they had to win. But – I think this year was I think this year is one of the best examples of of a reason we have to have an expanded playoff. Now you can debate on whatever number you want all day long, but you look at Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, Notre Dame, Cincinnati. You can put Oklahoma back in there. You can put Oklahoma State back in there. You can put Oregon potentially. And you can, I mean, and you can even extend it further than that if you want to. That's that's nine teams right there that you could see a possibility if they get hot winning the national championship. So for me, I think four teams is limiting. And I thought four teams was always weird because you say you have a power five. Well, how do you have a playoff with only four spots if you have five power five champions? I thought it was dumb like that anyway. I mean, you you can make an argument for six, eight, 10, 12, whatever you want to do. I'm a fan of the 12. So I think it gives you a chance to be creative with your automatic bids, your bye weeks and make the regular season count because you're playing for something. You're playing for privileges in the playoffs. But for me, there's always going to be those old heads that are like, there's only one team that can win the natty. And that's, I think that for me, that's short-sighted. But I think this year with all the upsets we've seen, with all the craziness we've seen, it's probably the best year as an example for why a four-team playoff just isn't in the – it shouldn't – should not be in the future plans of college football. And, you know, they made the announcement that the committee is working on potentially expanding it next year. I think it's going to be interesting to see how they work out the automatic bids, the seating, things like that. For me, if they expand it, the biggest thing I want to see is the profitability increase in which the the first and second round games are hosted at the home stadium. So you would have Georgia hosting in Sanford, Bryant Denny with Alabama, uh, Norman with Oklahoma. You would have to go to Otson for Oregon. You know, you could get a South Bend game in Notre Dame. That would make it more interesting and give teams ability to fight for home field advantage and allow those cities and towns and fans 
to profit from being in the playoffs and make it an overall, you know, a profitable event and a profitable goal for these universities. But that's a long way away. But I, I got big dreams for the playoffs. But I think expanding it at least a little bit is a positive step in the right direction. I agree as well. I think 12 kind of provides that FCS feel to the FBS. And I think with a 12 team playoffs, like you said, kind of brings this into perspective. Now you allow guys to have home playoff games, brings even more revenue and added money for those institutions. And in a 12 team playoff, you don't have to worry about conversation of should a nine power five get in, should they not? You can have a tons of at large bids, which automatically puts a non power five team in the mix. So now you won't have to worry about, hey, can Cincinnati get in? Can they not? We all saw what happened with that UCF team that went undefeated and beat Auburn in their bowl game. Yep. So now you kind of give the smaller schools a chance to be involved, give more bigger schools, more blue bills to be incorporated as well. And it kind of puts it all together. So, yeah. Um, with that being the case, this is the end of episode 35 of Independent. So it was great to have my guy Blue Bloods on here. It was great to talk FCS football. Great to talk a little bit FBS football. Before we go, Blue, just want to ask you how it was to be on my segment and what you're looking forward to college football-wise, FBS, FCS this weekend. Oh, man, listen, I, anytime you want me to come on here, man, I will make time in my schedule to come on here, man. I just appreciate you for even reaching out for uh, reaching out to me and wanting me to be on here, man. So thank you for that. And, you know, this weekend, rivalry week, the FCS playoffs start. First, for someone like me who watches all levels, this is the weekend that, like, I, I live for this weekend. This is my, like, you got the Iron Bowl, Bedlam, the game between Ohio State and Michigan. That's probably going to be a top five matchup. You know, you got all the great first round matchups in the FCS playoffs. You you have the Egg Bowl on Thursday night for Thanksgiving. I just you have so many games that I'm just so excited to watch this weekend. And then next weekend is going to get even better with conference championship weekend. I'm pumped for that. It's going to be a busy few weeks for your boy, but I know what I, I wouldn't rather have it any other way. This is so much more fun talking real football matchups than, you know, in the off season, all the what if storylines. I mean, this season's been one of the craziest in recent mem memory in terms of upsets at both levels. And I, I just think overall it's been a great season of football, man. It's going to be, hectic down the stretch and i can't wait to see who comes out the champion man and I'll, I'll be covering it all the all the way down man but anytime you want me back on here man i am down man love your show and i definitely appreciate it appreciate you as well this is where my man blue bloods make his money this time this weekend where all the football games are going to be out on the collegiate level it's going to be intense and it's going to be impactful but with that this is episode 35 from yours truly can believe money i'll be back next week hope you guys enjoyed this segment this episode this is a good one I'll holler at you next time. Peace.